We believe as a church that salvation from God's judgment is a gift of God's grace, that it is received by faith alone in the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. No sinner who fails to place conscious faith in Jesus Christ as his or her Savior will ever be saved from eternal judgment. We also believe that many self-professing Christians will one day be cast into hell. Now these are obviously not very popular views in our culture, and they subject us to charges of arrogance, of hatred, of mental instability, and worse. But we believe the doctrine of the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus, as faithful Christians have through the centuries, because this is what God has unmistakably revealed to us in the sacred scriptures. There is cultural belief and sentiment which comes head to head with what the Bible teaches and something must give. We know what God has revealed. The only way to God is through saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now many ridicule this belief with respect to, say, Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists, and the like, but it seems as particularly sinister to claim that many Christians will not enter the kingdom of God. How can you say such a thing? Well, the issue is not what we might say, but what God has clearly said. Countless people who identify themselves as Christians claim that salvation is incrementally gained in this life by doing good works. And I don't know that any one of them would ever say that faith has nothing to do with it. But when it comes down to what they really believe, they are saying that life is lived and salvation is gained by doing good works and gaining the pleasure of God. But we know passages such as Ephesians chapter 2 where God has spoken and said it is not by works so that no one can boast. It is by grace alone that we are saved clear, specific statements of Scripture that say something very different. And tracking with the Protestants of the 16th century and following, we deny that works-based salvation is true Christianity because God does. But then there are countless offspring of the Protestant Reformation today who believe salvation is by faith alone, in the death and resurrection of Christ alone, and who rest their faith in their assent to this orthodox Christian doctrine. We have periodically teen roundtables that we hold on Sunday nights where the teens are able to come and ask any questions uh, that they would like. And I think over the years, one of the questions that I have most frequently answered is something like this. How can I witness to my friend who believes everything I say about the gospel, but is not saved? That could be diced up a lot of ways, and it's an encouraging question on many levels. But they follow and say, I say salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. My friend says, I believe that. I say you must repent of your sins and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And my friend says, I believe that. I, I recite a creed or a confession to that effect every Sunday. I have been confirmed in that belief. 
We do not believe that salvation is by works. And most of us could defend that position by appealing directly to the authoritative writings of the Apostle Paul, as we have already in Ephesians 2. Yet we must equally recognize that a salvation which rests on mere assent to true doctrine is also useless. And is, I should say at this point, a matter that strikes a bit closer to home. This is a fatal disorder. Perhaps no one in Scripture addresses any more pointedly than the Apostle James in the second chapter of his epistle. And I invite you to turn there, if you will, in your Bibles. James chapter 2. The Apostle Paul opposed false teachers who believed they could gain God's favor through works of righteousness. James, by contrast, opposed professing Christians who believed that mental assent to doctrinal truth was in itself sufficient to save. James offers his contrary thesis to this view in verses 14 through 17 of James chapter 2. His thesis is this, that faith without works is dead. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? This thesis is stated or presented in two rhetorical questions. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Answer, none. It's no good at all. The second question, can faith save him? And the answer that is expected, of course, is no. And notice the phrase, that faith, which in the original text is literally the faith, but it is, as one puts it, an article of previous reference referring to the kind of faith that has just been mentioned. So I think we have the right translation here. Can that kind of faith, or can such faith, save such a one? James is not denying that we are saved by faith alone. He is rejecting the kind of faith that does not motivate a person to please God by actively obeying God. Such faith is utterly useless. It is a boat with a gaping hole in the hull. It is a computer without a monitor. It is a swimming pool without water. It is no good. It's useless. When a person stands before God in judgment, such faith will prove utterly worthless. Now James, having stated this thesis, now illustrates it in verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for, their, for the body, what good is that? A brother or sister probably referring to someone in the Christian assembly, but let's never forget Jesus' interpretation of a neighbor. This is probably someone, then, in our circle of influence, very likely uh, in the assembly, as the context would bear out in in the first part of chapter 2, but is someone who comes into your circle of influence that has a legitimate need, and you have come to the knowledge of that need. There are many needs in this world we could never address, but there are those needs that come across our path that we can address. And if a situation arises which should stir your heart to a loving response, and you simply say, good luck, have a nice day, 
and you walk away with callous heart, what good is that kind of faith to anyone? Such faith, James says, faith that believes in a loving God but does not love, is useless. And then reiterates his thesis in verse 17 to drive it home further. So also faith, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It is faith to some degree. James is conceding that point here. It is trust in something. It is belief in doctrine. But if it comes in that way, it is dead. It is not only that such faith is outwardly inactive. It is inwardly lifeless and ultimately useless. We are saved by faith alone. But any faith in God that does not issue in loving obedience to God is not the kind of faith that will save. Now what follows in verses 18 and following here in James 2 is James' defense of this thesis. So his thesis is that faith without works is a dead faith, is a useless faith. And now he defends that, I believe, along three lines here. The first line in verse 18 is that faith without works is no better than works without faith. Apparently those to whom he is speaking understand that work salvation is a non-issue. That this is not the way that we come to saving faith in Christ. But he turns this around and says that faith without works is no better than works without faith. Verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I'd love to call James in and say, explain that one for us here. It's almost impossible to take this verse and know if this person's an opponent or a friend of James that's supporting his point. It's hard to know when the someone stops speaking and James starts speaking. There were no quotation marks in the original text. But without laboring through the options of how we should understand specifically what verse 18 is saying, generally speaking, it's pretty clear. And suffice it here to say that James is saying this, that faith without works is no better than works without faith. You cannot prove faith by simple works, and you cannot prove faith if there are no works. Protestant mainline Christian, or the Baptist for that matter, who believes salvation is by faith in a doctrinal creed, is no better off than a Roman Catholic Christian who believes in salvation by works. So faith without works is no better than works without faith. Second argument, faith without works does not distinguish one from demons. Faith that doesn't have works doesn't render me any different than the situation with demons. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder at this truth. Referring, of course, to Deuteronomy 6.4, that the Lord our God is ehad. It is the Lord our God is one. That he is unique. He is absolutely unique. He is holy. He is the only God. He's one, not many. But the idea of Ahad is that the uniqueness of God, the holiness of God. You believe in the holy uniqueness of God. Wonderful. So do the demons. And they shudder. 
It's right for you to believe that God is a Had. But the truth is, the demons are so convinced of this very same truth that they shudder with fear. How are you any better than they are? Merely believing the truth will do nothing for the demons, and it will do nothing to save anyone from God's wrath. Faith without works is no better than works without faith. Faith without works, secondly, does not distinguish one from demons. Thirdly, faith without works fails to synchronize with the biblical record of salvation. And here James turns to two examples, the first being Abraham. Verse 20, do you want to be shown... Do you want proof, you foolish person? That, that sounds offensive to our ears, but that was just a very typical way of talking in a diatribe form as we are reading here. It uh, would have been a, a typical phrase that they'd use, you foolish person. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Uh, clearly here we must have a knowledge of the Old Testament text, referring back to Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham is called by God to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Uh, James says, let's go back to Genesis 22 and let's think through this and look at Abraham's faith. He's writing to Jews, chapter 1 and verse 1, and they revere Abraham as the father of faith, as we should. And when you look at the record of Abraham's faith in Genesis 22, that faith was demonstrated to be genuine when Abraham offered up Isaac in obedience to God. Now we read here what is something of a troubling phrase for us. Verse 21 says that Abraham, our father, was justified by works. Isn't that precisely what the Apostle Paul says is not the case? Listen to Romans 3 and verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And here's James saying, the fa our father Abraham is justified by works. Is this an irreconcilable difference? Is this a conflict in the text of Scripture? I don't think so at all, and I think from the words of James and the words of Paul themselves, we can see how their view very much is parallel and identical. The difference is this. Paul and James give a different meaning to the word justify, and this is the key. For Paul, when he talks about justification, he speaks of a believer's initial declaration of righteousness through union with faith in Jesus Christ. So the believer who is justified is justified now. We have been given the righteousness of Christ. We have that righteousness here and now. We are justified by faith alone. We do not enter into that standing of righteousness before God by works. This is Paul's position. But when James uses the word justify, he's thinking of it differently. Not of the now, but of the ultimate future. When we stand finally before God, Paul just chooses to use the word judgment for this concept. James chooses to use the word justify. They're talking about different things as they use the same word, justification. Now further, 
Paul and James are looking at two distinct sequences for conversion and works. Douglas Moo puts it this way, Paul denies any efficacy to pre-conversion works, but James is pleading for the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. So they're talking about different things, and the word justify being used by both needs to be understood to be taken in a bit different way. James is not denying that salvation is by faith. We'll actually see that as the text plays out if we're honest with it. But he is denying the notion that mere assent to certain truths is sufficient to save. Rather, as seen in Abraham's example, verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So James is fully aware that Abraham was justified by faith. In fact, he's going to quote Genesis 15, 6, which says exactly that in just a moment. But James stresses first that Abraham's faith was more than intellectual assent to certain truths about God. Abraham's faith produced the fruit of obedience to God's will, and that obedience both demonstrated and completed Abraham's faith. God never in Scripture, never in your life, will ever call upon His people to simply believe a truth. And that's the end of the issue. The belief to which God calls us always issues in a call to obedience, to act upon the truth that we have. Now, He does call us to believe certain things, to put our faith and our confidence in truths. But we live off of those truths They're given to us as a moral imperative. This is the case with Abraham. His faith was completed by his work. Verse 23, now he quotes Genesis 15. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's interesting here. Genesis 15 and verse 6, where God declares Abraham righteous because of his faith, happens 30 years before Genesis 22 when he offers Isaac. But yet the genuineness of Abraham's righteousness, indeed the maturation of Abraham's faith, is declared when he offers Isaac in obedience to God's call. He bends his will to God's and demonstrates that he does in fact believe in God. Now, this is the great patriarch of the faith, the grand old man to which we all look as the one who is the epitome of faith in God, the one who was willing to lay down his son in sacrifice because God told him to do so. I think then it's for a very specific reason that James now turns and takes somebody on the very other end of the scale, a pagan Gentile prostitute. Verse 25, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? We have Joshua chapter 6 here, of course, in background. And again, likely I think that Abraham chooses her specifically to contrast with Father Abraham. 
both pagan originally, but Abraham, this patriarch of the faith, Rahab, this prostitute, but both of them demonstrate the genuineness of their faith by conforming their wills in active obedience to and the fear of God. The example from Abraham's life comes after his faith has come to great maturation. Thirty years after he believed God and was counted righteousness, he offers Isaac. But here is this woman, having come to know of the people of God and of the purposes of God, trusts him and chooses to side with the people of God. In both cases, their faith was demonstrated by their actions. What if Abraham had not offered Isaac? What if Rahab had not hidden the spies, but had told the authorities that they were there? In both cases, it would have been a demonstration that they did not, in fact, believe God. Their works are the active reflection of the faith that they have in God. And so James has carried forward his thesis with this defense, and now summarizes it all in verse 26, when he says, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Begins with this very clear analogy. The body that does not have a spirit is lifeless. It's dead. And so, in like manner, faith that is not coupled with works, faith that does not produce works, is dead faith. The Apostle Paul's works stress that we cannot confuse faith and works. The epistle of James labors to remind us that faith and works cannot be separated. We cannot confuse the two. They're not the same thing, but we cannot separate the two. They must work together. Works do not supplement faith. We are saved by faith alone, but works are organic to genuine faith, and we must insist on this. As William Barclay puts it, no man will ever be moved to action without faith, and no man's faith is genuine unless it moves him to action. And that is James's point. This is not a difficult passage to understand. It's even supplied with its own illustrations throughout. It's pretty straightforward truth, but it's truth that we must grasp and not let go of. And let me strive to spend some moments together here as we think on along lines of application of what response should we have and how should we think in light of this fairly straightforward teaching. First of all, there is help here, I think, for witness, particularly if I could just name someone to Protestant mainline denominational type Christians who believe their faith in certain orthodox truths will save them. Do you struggle with that? To know how to proclaim the gospel to someone who believes all the facts that you believe, but you know there's no life there. How do we go about this? I think James is teaching us here to draw out the biblical relationship between faith and works. We do not want to go overboard to say that works is the source of our salvation, but we can be so worried about that that we leave somebody with a dead faith. When we're talking to someone who says, I believe that. I believe Jesus is the Savior. I believe that He died for my sins. I believe that He rose from the dead. But it's evident that there's no life there. We need to bring the spotlight down to the life. We need to start to talk about how faith 
is to issue forth in works that bring glory to God. We might ask, not necessarily this particular question, but a series of questions and probings along this line. Can you explain to me how your faith in Christ is transforming the way that you live? Now, it's on that point that a creedal, confessional type of Christian, it's just on paper and beliefs that they have, it's at that point that you're really going to begin to expose some things. Because generally, they kind of think of, well, church is my heritage, it's my background, it's, these are the things I believe, it's kind of my way of understanding and filtering life. But changing my daily life? I don't know that I really get the relationship there. I just go to church, I don't live there. I begin to probe and to get down to the connection between faith and works. And certainly it leads, I think, ultimately then to a proclaiming of the necessity of repenting of sin, of turning from who we are in our rebellion against Christ, and of the new birth. Someone who simply assents to certain external doctrines really gets touchy when we get around to talking about the new birth and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and this motivation within as we are related to Christ in a living and vibrant way. That discussion starts to get uncomfortable. We need to learn to turn it to the new birth, to living faith in Christ. I think this passage will help us when it comes to our witness to such people. I think it also needs to help us and, and does instruct us in lines of conversion. We need to rejoice with those who respond to the gospel, but we, also, we must always do so with measured patience. I've asked myself that question in the past. How is it that when your team wins, you can get so excited, you can jump right off the couch and start yelling? But when someone trusts Christ as Savior, you really kind of ho-hum about it a little bit. I started thinking through that, and I think there's probably something there that needs to be weeded out and is not right. But I also, as I reason through that, you know, when it comes to someone professing faith in Christ, it's not like a win. When your team's won, it's over. It's done. You know it. They won, barring protest. But they've won. When someone professes faith in Jesus Christ, you don't really know yet if it's genuine. It's simply the way that it is. I might ask it this way from Romans 10 and verse 13, is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord saved? That depends on how you qualify Paul's very stark promise in Romans 10, 13. He's not saying everything there. We've got to fill in some blanks. And the question that arises in Romans 10, 13 is, well, what does calls mean? Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does that mean? Now, here's where it gets closer to home. And we need to be very cautious here not to interpret such a call as mere verbal profession. More on that point in a moment. But it's not verbal profession alone that assures us that a person is saved. Genuine salvation can only be demonstrated by spiritual fruit, by active obedience that flows from a living faith. Now, if you're with me, if we believe that, then it comes down to discerning something other than simply a person praying a prayer, walking an aisle, defining a moment in their life where they have professed salvation, as important as that may be. 
When we receive new members into this assembly, when we receive requests for baptism, we need to not simply focus on assent to certain doctrines. Now, we need to do that. No one can be saved without believing certain truths to be true. But having come to establish that a person believes these truths to be true, we need to seek evidences or fruits of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Is there evidence in this person's life that they have been changed? That they live a life that is distinctive from the life that they could have lived? Were they simply like the demons, confessing the truth, but not possessing it? The key is to watch one's life, and obviously, in the end, only God determines the win. You know what I mean. When it comes to ball teams here or Olympic athlete, we know who won. It's over. It's done. That's history. History is not finalized until we stand before Christ. God alone can ultimately determine if one has come to saving faith. But in this life, the evidence of genuine saving faith is the fruit that flows from that faith. That links naturally to this third line of application. We can criticize those who believe they are saved because they believe in certain doctrines while committing much the same error. I think it works this way. It is common for those who believe in the gospel to place faith in a conversion experience. Let's establish, I don't think that is how James would counsel us. Let's establish the big question is not the circumstances that surrounded your conversion experience. As important as they may be, as good as they may be, as necessary as they certainly were, the big question is, is there spiritual fruit in your life? That's the question we need to learn to ask does your faith in Jesus Christ produce in you a desire to obey Him and to honor Him? You believe salvation is in Jesus Christ alone, crucified and risen. Wonderful. You have to believe that. But does that belief translate into living the life that Christ has called you to live? That's the question. I remember to this day where I was standing when I read... Uh, many years ago, a pastor who was writing an article and was talking about two friends that he'd met in high school, both of which were addicted to drugs, and how he led both of these two young men to Christ. Both of them, I believe as I remember the account, it was many years ago, but I, they, he was a fairly young man and they were both dead. And as I remember, they both died of a drug overdose. And in their Christian lives... They had confessed Christ as their Savior, but nothing had ever changed. They had gone on and just lived the same way they lived before they professed salvation. And this pastor wrote this article in blood earnest that these men were in heaven and that he would meet them there. And I just think in light of James chapter 2, would that be the article that James would write? I would love for this man to meet his friends there, and only God ultimately can know this. But James, I think, would say to us with grace, but with truth, faith without works is dead. 
It's not living genuine faith. It may be assent to the truth. But if there's no change, there's no works of righteousness that flow from this faith, it's dead faith. And it calls upon us clearly as believers in Christ to examine our lives. We cannot read a text like this without doing that. Is your faith in the gospel matched by joyful works of obedience to God? That links to the fourth line of application, which should be fairly clear, but let me state it. Genuine faith produces in the believer's heart a will and a desire to do what is right. That will and desire run up against sin in our lives. Places where there is temptation to which we yield. But that desire is there. There is a desire, a new desire now to live for God, to do what is right, to please Him. Even though we fail, even though we need to come and repent of our sin and confess our sins to God, nonetheless, that desire is always there. And in the context of the book of James, it will show itself in compassion for others. I don't live just for me. I live with thoughtfulness and compassion and love for other people. It's right here in this very chapter. The previous chapters we looked at it the week before, there will be a desire to control evil lusts and to encourage righteous desires in our life. We want to do what is right. There will be a desire to be with and to bless God's people. When we truly are part of the people of God, there is born within our hearts a unique love for the people that have been saved we share the common bond of Jesus Christ, and I want to be around God's people. I don't just slip in to be part of church, but the people I really enjoy to be with are those that don't know Christ. There's something seriously wrong there. There's a faith that's evidencing that it's dead. If that desire to be with God's people is not there, there will be a desire to give of ourselves, to give of our wealth to the cause of Christ. There will be a desire, a true, genuine desire to see other people saved, to see them come to understand this gospel, and a desire to be part of the work that God is doing to spread the glory of His name throughout this world. I will want that. There will be a desire to know and to honor God's Word. I want to know what He has to say. I want to do what He says. I don't find it in me sometimes. And there are times when I fail and disobey God's Word. But I love His Word. It's not something that's in the way. It's not something that I'm trying to get around. It's not something that I just I hope to appease others to make them think that I'm sort of within the range of God's counsel. I want God's Word. I love God's Word. I find comfort in it. I find instruction in it. I find conviction in it. And when I'm convicted, my heart says, He is my Father. He knows what is good. And I want to obey Him as much as I struggle. Where there is a living and active faith, it issues in works of righteousness. Faith without works does not save, verse 14. It does not profit, verse 16. It is dead, verses 17 and 26. It is no better than Satan's, verse 19. And it does not justify, verses 21 and 25. The only kind of faith that saves is the kind that actively honors God's Word. Now there should be great caution here, shouldn't there? 
What we are being instructed to see here in the text of Scripture is that there is a kind of faith which is a false faith. It's a pseudo-faith. It's not real. It assents to the truth. But it's not living. It's not alive. And that forces me to look at my own life and to ask this question, am I in the faith? Do I know Christ as my Savior? Is there a living faith? And to look to the works of righteousness that flow from my heart, the new desires that God has put there as proof But I know I probably speak to some with sensitive conscience and you look and you wonder, how on earth could I be saved? The desires of my heart are wicked and vile. I strive to do what God wants me to do and I fail. We've got to be very cautious here and clearly I can't speak to a whole congregation and address your heart specifically. But if that conviction is there, don't run from it. What you need to do is repent of the sin that is between you and God. And you need to trust the gospel of Jesus Christ. That His death alone, His resurrection alone, is necessary for your salvation. You must trust in that by faith alone. But by a faith that responds and actively desires to do what is right. If you say, there is no such desire in my heart, I want to be seen as a good person, but I really don't have any inner drive to do what's right and to honor God. Then your faith on the authority of what James has said is dead. And you need life. And I can't sell that to you or give that to you or give you a list of three things that you can do to gain life. All I can say is look to Christ crucified and risen and come in simple prayer before God and lay out your heart condition before Him and plead for His saving grace. It's all of mercy. Go to Him for mercy. You know where to go. You know what to believe. But what must happen is that you are born again. Go to Him. Go to Him in faith. Run to Him and be reconciled to God through the work of Christ. But perhaps you are under conviction of sin and you know that there are things in your life that do not evidence solid faith. But you know you belong to the Lord. Again, the answer is to repent and to trust in the gospel of Christ. Turn to God. Leave that sin now, today. Turn from it. And walk in the joy of good works flowing from the deep well of living vibrant faith. How good our God is to give us such faith. If you are not related to Him properly in that faith, come to Him today. Whether a believer who needs to repent or an unbeliever who needs to turn and come to Christ as Savior, He is our answer. He is the source of this faith. And may those works flow from us to demonstrate that that faith is being worked out in our assembly and in our individual lives by His mercy. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I bring before you in prayer this strange feeling of being at ease with the one that I fear. We stand before you, your God of power and authority and judgment and wrath, And we know we have no business 
in your presence, in our own standing. But we thank you for the mercy with which you have reached down to us and provided salvation in Christ. We know it's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works. We will never boast in our saving ourselves, but we will boast through all eternity in your grace. God, we thank you that you have purified for yourself a people who are zealous for good works. I thank you for the good works that have been demonstrated in this assembly this week, this past week, and I pray, God, will continue to be demonstrated day in and day out, year in and year out as you give us life. God, I plead that you would produce that zeal in us to do what is right and good. And we know that sometimes it turns people away, that sometimes it exposes, and that's hard. But I pray that there would be a genuine desire to obey you in every area of our lives and to know the joy of walking in fellowship with you and to know the witness of a faith that produces holy desires and righteous deeds and love for God and others. And I pray for anyone who's separated from Christ. I pray that they'd run to you for mercy and be reconciled to God this day. This is our cry to you. In the name of our Savior, amen.